the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation, a program providing help and information for our caregivers who are vital to the health and welfare of so many people in our community. You can hear Caregiver SOS on air Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. And now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, thank you very much, and welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zernio. You know, Carol is a nationally known gerontologist, the executive director of the WellMed Charitable Foundation. She also serves as the board chair for the National Council on Aging and spends a lot of her days working on the very kinds of issues we talk about right here on Caregiver SOS On Air. And we've got a special treat coming up in just a few minutes because, Carol, you and the Wellman Charitable Foundation have been uh, very close to the Harry and Jeanette Weinberg Foundation. That's right. We are very pleased to welcome Michael Marcus, uh, who oversees the grants for senior programs and caregiver programs. Uh, And Michael was actually very instrumental in our receiving a grant from the Harry and Jeanette Weinberg Foundation to do our caregiver teleconnection. We talk about it all the time. Um, And Michael Marcus believed in us and believed in the program. And he's going to talk to us about uh, caregiver programs, why the Harry and Jeanette Weinberg Foundation invest in caregiver programs and what he's trying to do to kind of change the world uh, around him in Maryland. That'd be cool. We look forward to talking to him. But first, you remember the old ad, this is your brain, this is your brain on drugs? Uh, You've got one now, your brain on sugar. Yes, and this is as scary as the ad of this is your brain on drugs where they squish the egg and you're like, ooh. So here's the deal. We know that sugar is bad for your waistline, but did you know that 74% of all packaged foods have some sort of sugar hidden in them? I I only know that because of Dr. Eva Lopez, who we're going to have on in uh, about a month here on Caregiver SOS on air. She's taught me to read labels. Right. Well, you know, we're only supposed to have about 5% of our daily calories come from sugar. And on average, we get 13% because we eat all of this processed food. So we're really getting about five times the amount of sugar that we need. And what they're finding is that sugar does all kinds of bad things besides make your um, waistline expand. Um, You know, it's if you take if you get to it's like too much of a good thing. So we all have reached for a piece of chocolate, right, or candy or a Coke or something as a reward. And it makes us feel all good because all those sugar molecules go and you feel great. Um, But unfortunately, we can just like I don't know. I don't know if it's like violence in video games. I don't know what it is. It's we can get too accustomed to it, so that our that we're rewarding ourselves too often, and now our brain is like craving. Now it wants more. It wants more, and it wants more, and it has to have more to get to that same level of enjoyment that it used to do. Um, and and then the the sugar in our brains is actually. Um, doing bad things like keeping us from being able to remember as well. Um, keep you know it it lowers the insulin in our brains, which you think, hmm, well, maybe that's a good thing. No, it's not a good thing because we need that for the cells to talk to each other. You know, really, our brains are little electrical sparks right. and communication. It's like uh, electrical wires talking to each other in this whole network, and we disrupt that with sugar. So sugar is is not a good thing, um, and it's it's going to be even more in the news than it already has been. can lead to type 2 diabetes. It can lead to type, yeah, I mean, besides just, you know, the, all the things in your health. But what they're saying is too much sugar can uh, increase your risk of Alzheimer's in later life. It can make your mood, uh, if you've ever had a sugar high, you've had a sugar low, which is that when your sugar just totally crashes after you've binged, um, binged too much sugar mm-hmm. and you know how you get depressed and cranky and really angry and kind of just... 
That's mean. the Snickers TV commercial. Well, that's it. Yeah, they show that. You turn into the monster and you eat more sugar than the Snickers monster goes your, away. Right. Yeah. So yeah. that's it. So you do become that monster. So if you don't want the mood swings, you don't want to increase your risk of Alzheimer's, you want your brain to be fresh and clear, and you don't want to be starving all the time because as somebody who's very sensitive to sugar, I can tell you, um, if I get too much sugar, I do get those sugar lows, and then I am starving. Starving, and that leads to you know me wanting to strangle someone, maybe perhaps <laughs> or binge eating, <laughs> or all kinds of bad things. Stay away from sugar. Sugar on your brain is bad. We don't find you late at night in front of the freezer spooning ice cream never. out of a oh, container. Oh no, never, never. You know why? Because it has too much sugar. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it does. It's not. Ew. No. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. Now, that's your brain on sugar. What about your brain on exercise? Well, this was interesting because this actually came from United Healthcare, um, and it's our healthy mind, healthy body. And they're talking about how your brain is calm and focused on exercise, which is just the opposite of what it is <laughs> on, on sugar. sugar. So exercise naturally boosts those chemicals and hormones um, that strengthen the connection between your cells. We were talking about that communication. And it can even help you form new links. We've talked about that in several articles. They're finding that it actually boosts brain cell uh, production and slow down the loss of brain cells over time. Um, so the, they're saying, again, with the exercise, it's two and a half hours of moderate intensity activity a week. You know, if you do that 30 minutes a day. But the interesting thing is we've also talked about those shorter workouts, those seven-minute workouts, 10-minute right. workouts. workouts. Yeah. So if you can get – you've got to get the aerobic workout. But it doesn't have to be a half hour. It can be 10 minutes. It can be seven minutes. So our excuses for not exercising are kind of going away. You know, I'm waiting for the study that says one squat, that's all you that's need. That's it, one squat a day. Yes. Um, so for people who exercise regularly, this is what United Healthcare says it means for your brain. Increased focus and mental sharpness, including the ability to plan and organize tasks, uh, reduced stress and greater calm, improved memory, and better sleep. So there's nothing on this list that does not sound like a good thing. A little exercise, good for your brain. Too much sugar, Bad for your brain. And you mentioned boosting memory. You've got a list, seven ways to boost your memory. And yes. exercise has to be one of those. Yes. This came from grandparents.com, and I pulled it down off um, nextavenue.org. Uh, last week we had a guest uh, from Next Avenue. Richard Eisenberg. Richard Eisenberg, who writes for them. I love, you know, they have some great columns. So this is seven easy ways to boost your memory. These are going to surprise you. So one of them is smelling rosemary. Really? Yeah, and if you've ever had somebody have rosemary in the in the garden, you we know, you grow can, it on our patio. Yeah, you walk along and you can run your hand over. Right. You smell like an Italian restaurant. It's <laughs> it's fantastic. <laughs> you do. So there's something about the it's you know it's like um what do they call that therapy the aromatherapy aromatherapy. I was Thank at the you. West End Senior Center. I need more Center. rosemary so I can remember that at word. At the West End Senior Center just the other day, and they were passing out sprigs of rosemary to the seniors. It was that for their to help their memory. They were playing bingo. Maybe it was. <laughs> they were like uh, seriously. Really? Okay. Well, so smelling rosemary. Rosemary. There's something in the chemicals in the smell of rosemary huh. that actually breaks that blood-brain barrier, um, and it does wow. good things for your brain and can boost your memory. All right. One college students have figured out is start drinking coffee. Really? Yeah. So apparently if you drink caffeine after you've learned something, you will retain it better. It actually helps imprint the what you have learned. Huh. So don't drink coffee before class. Go to class and then drink your coffee. Interesting. Yeah. I thought that was kind of fascinating. Um, another one that was really interesting was lifting weights. They did a study, and I don't know how they think of these things, but apparently if you do weight training or some kind of resistance training Right after you have learned, you know, something intricate and difficult, that you will convert it into long-term memory. You will memor you will memorize it better. Did I say that right? Um, if you do some sort of resistance training, so learn something, drink coffee, learn something, lift weights. This sounds you have to be very active when you're learning. So you can't just sit there. Who, Don't just sit there. Actors who are trying to learn lines in a play. Uh, probably ought to be lifting weights when they're done. Oh, they ought to, yeah, li learn, do your lines, lift a few weights, go back, <laughs> learn some more lines. I don't know. I'm going to try this one out. I like you know, that. I'd like to test this one. All right. All right. So the what? Stop smoking. 
you know, because smoking A is very bad for you, and it also impairs your ability to retain um, memories. I am amazed there's there are people who still smoke. It is so addictive; it's tough to quit. Uh, but they're still out there smoking. Well, it does, and smoking accelerates cognitive decline. So if you don't care about lung cancer and you don't care about emphysema, maybe you care about t- cognitive decline. And wrinkled faces. And wrinkled faces and bad skin. All right. So next <laughs> on the list to boost your memory, have sex regularly. Ooh, that one was a surprise. There you are. Yeah. So it's easier than Sudoku. Um, it's more fun than weightlifting, and it'll help you remember where you left your car keys. <laughs> Wow. Now let me know how that one works out. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, apparently you produce new neurons, a process known as neurogenesis. Who knew sex led to neurogenesis? I've never heard this. Have sex, lift weights, and drink coffee. (laughs) And drink coffee. It's not such a bad list. You'd be like Johnny Carson used to do a character called the Great Karnak. Like, yeah, what, yeah, you know, the right. envelope to the forehead. There you are. Oh, yeah, that tells us both of us how old we are. <laughs> so, you know, memory lives in our, our hippocampus. That's what gets impaired with Alzheimer's. And apparently having sex stimulates the hippocampus. Wow. There you go. Who knew? Who knew? All right. So do cardio in addition to lifting weights and having sex. And sex is cardio exercise. <laughs> Um, okay, it doesn't burn a lot of that. calories. Yeah, well, it, actually, it can. Um, so, doing some cardio, jumping around, all that, getting that blood to your brain. They found that they took people with mild cognitive impairment, so people they knew had memory problems, right? And they had them do some cardio, and their their retention improved, their no brain kidding. functioning improved. Huh. So that's your brain on exercise. And then the last thing is keep a sensible sleep schedule. Sleep is the, you know, the next big thing. That's critical. It's critical. You're not going to remember anything if you don't sleep. So when you want to convert memories into long-term memory, you have to be asleep to do that. That's when all that imprinting does. That's what all that dreaming does. So when you're learning something new, it keeps you awake. When your brain wants to convert it into long-term memory, you sleep. So have sex, drink coffee, lift weights, do do cardio, cardio, and go to sleep. And go to sleep and don't smoke in bed. There you are. Don't ever smoke (laughs) in bed. Don't ever smoke and don't smoke in bed. Wow. I like that. I know. I thought it was pretty good. We got uh, about 30 seconds for one more. 30 seconds. Oh, we're not even going to be able to talk about. Well, we'll have to talk next week, I promise you. We will talk about the easiest to remember and most – I thought they were really helpful – Rules for healthy eating. If you want to know about healthy eating, listen to Caregiver SOS on air next week, and I will share with you some of the best rules I have seen. And tell a friend, tell a neighbor. By the way, if you want to tell us something, you can. Just email us, radio at wellmed.net, radio at wellmed.net, and we indeed love to hear from you. We're going to be talking in just a couple of moments uh, to a gentleman who knows a whole lot Uh, about caregiving and caregiving programs. We'll be talking with Michael Marcus, who is with the Harry and Jeanette Weinberg Foundation, making a difference for older adults. you hear him right here on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron with Carol Zernio. you hear us at 9.30 a.m., The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, and one of the things I'm most pleased about being a WellMed patient is the way in which I'm treated by all the staff at the clinic I go to. And Dr. Robin Eikhoff, that's not by accident. No, it's not. We really spend a lot of time training our staff and asking them to really connect with the patients and get to know them because we consider them part of our clinic home. And the other thing that's really impressive to me is the amount of time my well-med physician spends with me, and you do the same thing with your patients. Yeah, I, I really do try to, and, and we do a lot, a lot more time than your typical uh, provider can afford to give. And I think that allows us to get to know the whole patient and not just their diseases. That's cool. Don't have a lot of time to talk about prevention, but you do a lot of that as well. We spend an enormous amount of time on preventative measures. Want information about WellMed? Want to be a WellMed patient? Call 210-614-WELL. 210-614-WELL. Well, we are in for a special treat, and we're so pleased you have stuck with us here on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. And, Carol, this is a gentleman you've known for quite a while, Michael Marcus, Program Director for Older Adult Services. 
at the Harry and Jeanette Weinberg Foundation in Baltimore, Maryland. And you and Michael have worked together on several grant projects. Well, we have. We've been so fortunate that the Harry and Jeanette Weinberg Foundation care about caregivers and seniors and that Michael um, has kind of taken up the charge for this. Michael, I was just realizing that you're you were instrumental in my coming to WellMed. So one of the reasons I've been with the WellMed Charitable Foundation started with our work with the foundation, your foundation, um, on the caregiver teleconnection. So that in itself is a great contribution, I think, and thank you for pointing that out. You yourself are a great contribution to the well, she field, is, Carol. and uh, in another iteration of my life, I ran Jewish Family Service in a building that the Harry and Jeanette Weinberg Foundation helped put up, and that's the campus of the San Antonio Jewish community. It's a beautiful campus. It is a beautiful not. campus. And, and so. your money helped make it happen. But the people there did the work. Oh, they did. Well, thank you. They did. Uh, Ian Fisher and the gang knew how to raise money. Well, so, uh, you know, we just thinking about the, the long reach of the Harry and Jeanette Weinberg Foundation. All the way from Baltimore. All the way from Baltimore, all the way across the country. As I'm, I'm remembering, you and I, you know, have been in the aging field for quite a while, but we started working together uh, with the Teleconnection Project, and that was back in, I think I, it was 2008, I think, when you released the request for proposals. So right. why did the Harry and Jeanette Weinberg Foundation think that caregiver projects were important? So I came to the Harry and Jeanette Weinberg Foundation in 2007 from work that I had been doing, as you know, Carol, regarding um, asset, uh, an asset-based approach to working with communities. What do we have that already exists in communities that can serve older adults and 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 help make older adults' lives um, better and help them continue to age in the community if that's what they chose. And it was really clear during that experience that much of what happened that was positive was the result of the support older adults who had chronic conditions were receiving from family and friends. And when I came to the foundation, I was asked, are there some areas that we as a foundation ought to be looking at? Uh, we had a about a year-long process of discussion in that regard, and caregiving came out on top. And in part, it came out on top because many of the trustees had seen many of the things that I was just describing. And we knew from both our own experience and from the research we did that if we didn't have family and informal caregivers, we really wouldn't have a long-term care system in the United States. Now, let's back up just a little bit for folks who are listening who, who don't know what the Harry and Jeanette Weinberg Foundation is all about. Who, who are you? Well, I am Michael Marcus, the <laughs> Harry and Jeanette Weinberg <laughs> Foundation, which has, I hope, a separate identity from, Mike, from Michael Marcus, uh, is um, a foundation that was founded in 1959, we uh, were founded by Harry and Jeanette Weinberg, obviously. Harry made a fortune by uh, buying and selling commercial property and managing commercial property, among other things, in Baltimore and Dallas, New York, Honolulu. Uh, and he made, he dedicated a lot of his earnings both informally and then later after a foundation was founded, to helping older adults, particularly low-income older adults. And there are lots of stories I can tell you, but I'm not sure we have enough time for it. The foundation's really gone through, oh, four or five different kinds of eras, epochs, as I talk about them. Originally, it was Harry and some of his uh, colleagues, his friends, uh, figuring out what to do with the funding. And then there was a board of trustees uh, that were doing the funding directly, each individual board member doing the work with staff member. In the early, two, uh, Harry passed away in 1990. Um, in the early 2000s, Harry's appointed uh, president, Bernie Siegel, retired, and Shale Spiller, who is a well-known attorney in Baltimore and community activist, took on the reins of CEO, and it was at that point, about 2005, that the 
Foundation began to hire program staff. It, it turns out it's harder to give away $100 million a year than it looked, and there need to be some staff to, to do it. And we are now um, a foundation with about, and we, we have um, in 2000, and, and I'm catching up with myself here, Carol, but in 2010, Shell retired, and Rachel Monroe became our CEO. She had been the COO before. Now, the foundation makes about $100 million a year in grants. We have a, a value, a corpus of about $2.25 million. So we give away almost exactly 5% uh, of what we do every year. The largest grant-making area in the foundation is uh, older adult services, the area that I work in uh, with a colleague, Aaron Murky. And we are, by happenstance, the largest funder in the field of aging in the United States, maybe the world. We don't really know. And I want to stop for a minute, if you'll permit me, Ron, because I think this is important. That sound, being the largest funder in the field of aging sounds way more impressive than it actually is. Aging only receives from private foundations about one or two. Private foundations only put up about one or two percent of all philanthropy uh, in the country. Um, so, so we are as a field uh, getting very little private foundation money. Why is that? Uh, well, you know, I was just at a meeting in Washington with other grant makers in aging. We were trying to figure that out. We're gonna, we are, we're having a pretty robust discussion about that. There are a few things about it, first of all, and the thing we always hear is that, and is that kids are just easier to, to sell, frankly. Kids um, and animals. Kids and animals, that's right. right. And as a smart broadcaster, I know you, I, I know you observe the rules. Don't work with kids and animals. Never. <laughs> <laughs> Never. <laughs> because they'll feel the seed. But the kids are, and, and we shouldn't, and I don't want to take anything away from Right. It's not that children. that's not valuable. There's a great we value do, in that. <laughs> right. Yeah. We do not do enough of that, and they really are our future, and we sure. should be doing that. But it is easier for foundations to sell that to their boards. Well, Carol mentioned uh, last week on the show that if you ever really want to turn a group off at a cocktail party, she just has to mention, oh, by the way, I'm a gerontologist. That's right. Their eyes right. glaze over. <laughs> you know, you've, done, you've had that happen, right? <laughs> well, what do you do, Marcus? Well, I work on senior programs. Oh, oh. And, and a piece of that is, you know, I think some of it, you know, a lot of foundation boards are older themselves. And talking about older adults, frankly, if you want me to be, if, uh, bring some of my clinical social work skills, which there are very few, up, um, I think it has a lot to do with people facing their own mortality as well. You know, you talk about older people, you begin to think about your own aging, which for those of us in the field, we can celebrate. For a lot of other people, the whole society doesn't celebrate aging the way we could. Well, well, and that's probably because they were taking care of older relatives. You know, they, they had right. somebody in their family that their mother had Alzheimer's, somebody right. had Parkinson's, somebody had, you know, a decline, and they saw that's it right. as something very negative, as opposed to what you're trying to do through the foundation now is to help improve and, and make a, a positive experience in your later years. Correct. As you Correct. take a look at, and we we've, we've keep talking about this as well, the uh, the huge bulge of older folks moving through society. Uh, we're going to run out of caregivers. We're going to need a professional core of caregivers. Where do they come from? Who trains them? Who's pay- paying them? And can they provide the same kind of quality care that people are getting today? Well, I, I, I'm not sure. The last question is a really interesting question because it has a lot to do with exactly the things you preceded with, Ron. It's who recruits them who pays them, what kind of status people have, and how training is organized. I don't think we have time to get into technicalities of training paid caregivers, but indeed that's a real issue. Paid caregivers, thank God, um, are out there because in many instances paid caregivers 
really support the needs of family and informal caregivers. We, we at this moment have about 2.753 million paid caregivers in the United States. Uh, we probably need more like 4.5 million, about 4.5 million. There has been a very high turn- turnover rate in paid caregivers, as Carol knows, and part of the issue with paid caregivers has to do with how they're recruited, how they're trained, the level of professionalism that they're shown, that they're modeled, the way they're treated by their employers. You know, Carol, not too long ago, you'll be shocked by this, I think, not too long ago we were reviewing a proposal from um, a, from an organization provided residential long-term care. And, and for the most part, we're talking about home and community-based, but this was really really stood out. And we asked as part of the part of the process for them to give us an organizational chart. And they showed the president of the organization, the vice president, and the various the various department heads. But the vast majority of paid staff or paid caregivers and they were nowhere to be found. Hold that thought. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna come right back to you. That's a very good point. Uh, and uh, it is shocking, but not surprising. Stick with us. Uh, we're talking about caregiving and the work of the Harry and Jeanette Weinberg Foundation. Michael Marcus is with us. I'm Ron Aaron. Along with Carol Zernio, you're listening to Caregiver SOS On Air on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. So we got to the organizational chart that shows the bigwigs, but not the worker bees. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel on 930 AM. The answer, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air. Michael Marcus, Program Director for Older Adult Services at the Harry and Jeanette Weinberg Foundation, is with us on our hotline. And you, you were telling us a, really a fascinating story. So, so we were looking at this organizational chart and we called them up and they said, well, where are the paid caregivers, the folks who actually put hands on the people that you're caring for, and the answer was basically silence. They, they didn't know how to answer that. And so we are very focused on making sure that the people who actually deliver the care, whether they're paid or they're family and friends, are not only recognized but supported in the way that they need to be to give the best possible care to some of the most fragile people and in our society, but also some of the people, most of the people who are enormous assets. Everybody has the opportunity, everybody can give something regardless of who they are, and that includes older adults who are frail in need support. We can talk more about that. Well, many caregivers, many the paid caregivers, let me just finish the thought, Ron. Many of the paid caregivers are the people who have the least opportunity in our society. They're often women of color. They're often people who came to this country with their eyes full of hope, and this is what they could get, and they are dedicated to their jobs. And many of them want to do a great job and need the support and the training. We've run a number of very effective training pilot projects and have seen great results, high retention rates, high levels of knowledge, high dedication. And, so, and, and probably a lot more job satisfaction as well. Great deal more job satisfaction, which is part of the reason why they stay. Well, one Among, of the... Sure. Oh, guys say so one of the one of the advantages of, of the work that you and the foundation do is that you're looking at these projects with kind of fresh eyes they didn't they didn't see that they didn't include the direct caregiver and in a very big way you are trying to kind of refashion the future of you know the state of Maryland uh, and what it means to grow older and live in a community. Can you talk a little bit about this vision that you all are trying to, to paint there in Maryland and what it might mean for the rest of us if we pay attention to what you're doing? So one of the things I really love, Carol, Rod, is because she's great at segues, and you're exactly right. Um, the Weinberg Foundation, after we 
after we completed the family informal, the national family informal caregiver initiative, our trustees said, you know, Michael, you found out all this great stuff like caregiver SOS and the work that's going on that was going on in San Antonio. Um, let's bring it all home to Maryland. And they have given me and my colleagues, uh, both within the foundation and here in Baltimore in the state, the opportunity to make Maryland the best place to grow old. I'm sorry, Texas. And I wish we could control weather because it may very well be that way. Well, we, we now rank 10th on the list of worst places, places to, to grow retire. old. Yeah, we're Texas 10th. is 10th. We're, we're in the top 10 worst yeah. places. Yeah, I'm really sorry. We'll talk about Texas as we immediately after it gets done with Maryland. Or maybe they say And what the trustees did was they said, we want you to bring back the good stuff you found, and we want you to uh, use Maryland literally as a living laboratory. How can we bring best practices uh, from both the caregiving world but from other places as well? Uh, there are some Israeli organizations that are doing fantastic stuff with things like wheelchair transportation and what I call urgent alert, not emergency alert, I help I've fallen, I can't get up, an urgent alert, which is uh, I need somebody to change the light bulbs so I can get from my bedroom to the bathroom, which has an enormous impact on caregivers. It means that your daughter or your husband or your wife or your grandchild, whoever your caregiver is, doesn't have to leave work and come home and change the light bulb, uh, eating up their own time, but also makes it possible for people to keep living in the community. And, and put together collaboration organizations that are both doing the work and who could do the work across the state. We've started in Baltimore City and Baltimore County. We've made thus far nine grants, totaling about $4.5 million. We are delighted that Carol and Caregiver SOS is part of that and the WellMed Foundation are part of that collaboration through our relationship with Johns Hopkins Bayview campus. Um, and what we're looking for is a way to create a foundation for the work that's being done across the state. And we think about it as being hubs of activity connected by sort of tissue. Think of it as hubs and tissue, the way to build skeleton and a body of great work to keep people in the community if that's where they want to be. What's the and tissue? Carol was certainly part of that. What is the tissue that holds it together? So the, the whole body is what we call no wrong door. It means that if you show up um, for a, a clinic appointment at one of the Johns Hopkins clinics, primary care clinics, and you're there with your caregiver, or the caregiver's there with you, whatever, and uh, you express a need, or the caregiver expresses a need for access to food, or to benefits, or to transportation, you will be able to get an immediate warm uh, referral to that. And by warm, meaning they know you're, if you're showing up at the door, uh, they know that you're qualified for whatever it is that, that you need, and they're going to deliver it to you. What we're hoping to do is create a system across the state that does that, which is underpinned by the great work that Carol is doing, the, the work of sort of continually educating people and giving people a way to connect with each other using the simplest common technology we have, which is the telephone as well as using the web and the radio and the things that you're familiar with, Ron. So it's full um, service. So it's full service. It's through a partnership. Yesterday I had a, a meeting that went about twice as long as it was supposed to with the State Secretary of Aging talking about how we can uh, bring the state's work and the state's going this direction too, in into partnership with the work that we're doing. And I will tell you, Carol, when I began to describe the work you were doing, she was swooning. It was really interesting to watch the reaction. He did that? 
that's great. So I, you should, you should expect a call sometime soon. I think. Excellent, excellent. We would love to talk to the secretary. Well, you know what and, you're describing though is a very holistic approach. You know, whereas traditionally, and a lot of caregivers out there listening will probably understand. You know, they go to one agency, they get one agency. And then they have to right. go to another agency and apply again and go through the story again. And there's nothing connected. There's they're jumping know, through hoops. They're jumping constantly, jumping right. through hoops with five right. different case managers and twenty different assessments. And, and you're really trying to create a network and this holistic thinking. It's not just about me and my organization. It's about right. this person and how do I connect them to everything that they need. What's the ultimate in patient centered delivery or, of well, care or person right person centered right. In, in fact, I was just—I was thinking that it's ultimately person-centered uh, care. And it's seamless. more than that. It's seamless. person-centered, and it's empowering. So, how's it working? So, so far, we've seen some great examples of of not only collab- cooperation, collaboration, but a real desire on the part of participating organizations to do it. Uh, we know just yesterday, again, I was told by uh, one of by an agency that they had just fallen in love with a colleague agency because they were getting such clear information from them. They were able to work together really well. And I'll give you an example of how it's working. One of the, one of the agencies we funded uh, in this project is something called Benefit Stated Trust. This effort is called this initiative. And Benefit Stated Trust uses call center technology to pre-qualify and then help people fill out applications for benefits, things like SSI and um, uh, low-income um, home energy programs and food stamps, things like that. Part of that, so what happens is when Mrs. Greenberg, who we always cite in our work here, you know, our Jewish foundation, Mrs. Greenberg, uh, calls up and says, I need, and I understand from the state, if I call you, you'll help me get uh, food stamps. When the very pleasant young person finishes helping Mrs. Greenberg fill out that application and submits it, that very pleasant young person will also say, what else can I do for you today? Not as a, not as a sort of going away piece, but really what else can I do for you? Where did you get your food last night? Can I help you sign up with a feeding program? Are you going to the senior center today? How are you going to get there? Can I help you sign up with a transportation program? Does your daughter need help in learning how to do better care for you? We will help sign you up with a training program or sign her up with a training program. And so far, they've had about 5,000 calls. Cool. Been going on for about six months, ninety-eight percent qualifying for benefits. Um, of when people call up, most of them have been referred to a community-based agency. We're delighted. I can give you a bunch of other examples, but I know we have limited time. Yeah, and I'm sure so Mrs. Delighted. Greenberg's draw just drops when somebody <laughs> is that thoughtful and that comprehensive and asking her what she needs. Well, and I have. Actually, have been uh, I've been fortunate to listen to some of the um, to listen to some of the calls, and you can hear that happen. Actually, Carol, that when she realizes that she has reached the place where she or her caregiver can get real help, there really is a pause. And, and and they keep and people keep saying you can really do that for me. You can really do that for me. All right, now hang on. You're going to fall into that cone of silence in a moment, and uh, we will. Okay. No, we can't squeeze an extra segment. I don't want to let him go. I was going to say, I no, want to keep him. no, Michael. You know, we, Michael, we're going to have wow. to have you back because we have burned through both of fabulous. our segments with you. You are okay. fabulous. Well, and, and you know, you. I was just thinking. I, I, years ago, I worked. Uh, on uh, Capitol Hill as an administrative assistant. And what you need to hire are all those really great caseworkers who do all that work for congressmen. They're, uh, well, they're highly you know, trained. I have, a, I have a, a son who graduated from college about a year ago with a degree in creative writing, and I 
told the only place it could really work was Congress. Yeah, you're right for creative writing. That is true. <laughs> All right, we'll do this again. Hey, well, thank you. Yeah, it, so. Before you go, though, tell, tell if people want to learn more about the work you're doing. How do we find out about the Weinberg Foundation? So we are very easy to find on the web. It's www.hjweinbergfoundation.org. www.hjweinbergfoundation.org. What you will see, uh, if you want to look at the older adults piece, you'll you'll be able to find that pretty easily on the website. Got to stop you right there, Michael. We're we're all out of time. Thank you. Appreciate it. Michael Marcus from the Henry Jeanette and uh, Henry and Jeanette Weinberg Foundation. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. Take 10 is next, right here on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, and one of the things I'm most pleased about being a WellMed patient is the way in which I'm treated by all the staff at the clinic I go to. And Dr. Robin Eikhoff, that's not by accident. No, it's not. We really spend a lot of time training our staff and asking them to really connect with the patients and get to know them because we consider them part of our clinic home. And the other thing that's really impressive to me is the amount of time my WellMed physician spends with me, and you do the same thing with your patients. Yeah, I, I really do try to, and, and we do a lot, a lot more time than your typical uh, provider can afford to give. And I think that allows us to get to know the whole patient and not just their diseases. That's cool. Don't have a lot of time to talk about prevention, but you do a lot of that as well. We spend an enormous amount of time on preventative measures. Want information about WellMed? Want to be a WellMed patient? Call 210-614-WELL. 210-614-WELL. Thank you for sticking with us on Take 10. We follow each of our Caregiver SOS on-air programs with Take 10 with Dr. Jamie Heisman, a nationally known therapist and a man who is well-known in working with caregivers as well as people who are struggling with addiction, and Carol Zerniel, our co-host on Caregiver SOS On Air. Uh, Ordinarily, we take up kind of interesting sidelight topics that will really tweak your mind, and and this week we're tackling a really difficult and complex one. It spins out of a case in Iowa, a former state legislator in his late 70s whose wife was diagnosed with dementia, uh, she was in a nursing home, and he would visit her, and occasionally uh, they would have intimate sexual relations. At one point, the hospital staff came to him and said, uh, we don't believe your wife is cogniz- uh, has the mental capacity uh, to consent uh, to any kind of sexual relations, and we ask you please to refrain from doing so. And at uh, some point, a roommate in the room in which the wife was thought she heard the sounds of sex from the other side of the curtain uh, reported him to the staff. He ultimately was arrested and charged uh, with sexual assault. Uh, his wife had subsequently died, and it's a very difficult case, Carol Zerniel. Well, it is, and we should mention that the case has now concluded. He was acquitted. And he was acquitted. He was found not guilty. Um, and you know, I want to say by a jury of his peers, right? By right. a jury of his peers, right. which which is this is a hard one to ever find guilty if it wasn't a jury of the of his peers. Would it be like assisted suicide with a jury of your peers. Yeah, yes. it'd be tough, right? And you know, this is we we talked about this internally among the caregiver SOS staff. This is such a tough case because obviously, um, you know. Sex and the urge for sex—that's a prime. That's very primal. That uh, Alzheimer's and dementia, um, in many cases, is not going to knock that out, or it may actually accentuate. Some it. become hypersexual. Some some do, and and like I said, that that kind of an urge doesn't go away. And then you have somebody who's, um, you know, they were recently married. It, it, they were kind of still in an, I would say, a newlywed phase when all of this happened and and so if somebody can't tell you that yes they consent um but they're acting in a way that leads you to believe that they would like something you know and that which is what he was saying that's pretty tough i mean how many husbands are going to turn their wife down when she's like honey you know i'd like to be near you i want to be close to you right it's tough 
And, Jamie, do you run into this at all? Well, we all run into this at all as clinicians. I mean, that's what I want to point out here. This is a very, 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 not, I mean, well-known issue in terms of the world of psychology. Uh, marital rape is, is very, very consistent with what we're talking about here, and, and that's basically a sexual act committed without a person's consent uh, when the perpetrator um, is the individual's partner. And so this, with, this is compounded in so many ways by Alzheimer's or cognitive decline. Um, it, it really puts it into a great place. Uh, I don't want it to be put into a place where we start forgiving or thinking this is all about marital rape because, you know, 28%, I think, of rapes are happen with intimate partners and they need to be prosecuted and somebody really is saying no and it's, a, it's an act of rage and control. In this case, it's compounded by the, uh, a national you know, epidemic called Alzheimer's that we all kind of can relate to in somewhat of a sympathetic way. Now, do you think perhaps the hospital staff overextended themselves and perhaps uh, walked into an area that uh, there was no reason to go into? You know, it all depends in, in, about the messenger here, doesn't it, Ron Carroll? Um, who was the hospital, oh, excuse me, the nursing home staff? Uh, who was it? Was it a clinician? Was it a med tech? Was it a, uh, um, you know, a physician? Was it the attending? Was it the psychiatrist? Um, this has to, you have to be very clear on boundary sort of grounds when you're going to have a conversation like this with, with anybody. And the messenger, I think, really, really does matter. Because here, here's the deal. If it's part of the treatment plan and it's going to create medical decompensation among, you know, with the patient, if you will, with his spouse, then the physician can be extraordinarily clear and say, no, this cannot be done. But if it was led with some ambiguity and, and, and empty area there of jello where nobody knew where anybody stood, that's a different issue. Well, and, and let's face it, uh, nursing homes are not comfortable with this topic very much, I mean, at all. So even when Alzheimer's is involved, the idea of nursing home residence and sex is something that's just now uh, being allowed and, and thought about. It's like, you know, once you go into the nursing home, that's it. It's game over. Um, but the residents certainly haven't ever thought that over the years. And nursing Correct. homes are finally starting to recognize the needs of the residents. But there's a lot of... Um, I would say ambiguity uh, and uncertainty and the rules may be this way and that way. So I think Jello is a very good word for that. And, of course, they were in a shared room. It was uh, a room in which there was a, a, another nursing home resident in the adjoining bed with a curtain between them. Right. Well, again, you know, there's another dynamic we don't need to get into, which is a whole other show. But let's say they didn't have the money to have a, a private room. Would any of this matter? Right. Well, um, or, or there wasn't a private room available to them in the facility. I mean, nobody offered them one. Right. Or did somebody spend down to Medicaid, so now they have to have two in a room? These type of things are all questions that go into it. But I, I do really think that this is something that needs to have our continual discussion. It, it's opened up a dialogue. Um, for me, you know, it, it did fall in that sort of gray area. <clears throat> Again, if it was part of the treatment plan and everybody really <clears throat> felt that this was was uh, going to be a very much of a challenge to to the treatment plan and to the medical well-being of this man's wife. Then it's clear. Then then by all means, you have a court case. Now, is that, uh, that a con- I believe you have a court case. Is that a conversation, Carol and Jamie, that uh, goes on during admittance and talking about treatment plans, where uh, one spouse is. Uh, certainly fine and vigorous, not suffering from dementia, clearly capable of uh, of sex, and the other one may have dementia and you don't really know? Let me comment that for a second about Carol's point, because Carol brought up a great point to answer your question. Um, I think that nursing homes and assisted living are extraordinarily uncomfortable, as Carol just mentioned, in dealing with this. In fact, it's just for our listening audience, you know, sex does not turn off. This is the the, the the largest group of, of sexually transmitted diseases being passed in our country is by seniors, and it is often in assisted living or even skilled nursing environments. So we, we really have to be clear that, uh, that, that this is something more commonplace among seniors than, than our audience would really like to, to, to know. So I think assisted living has a difficult time dealing with it. They have a difficult time dealing with alcohol and drug issues. Um, they have no real set policy there. In fact, they use alcohol and drugs to recruit families 
Um, so these are, are, I think, are things that, as and Carol, really, who's, who's executive director or heads in the National Council of Aging and is executive director of our foundation, I think has, has a great sort of uh, chance to weigh in here and give us ideas of how, as a, as a gerontologist, we should start facing these issues. Well, I was thinking about all of the talk that uh, recently about um, death and death with dignity and a person's rights and how we have to, we talk about needing to have these conversations. Well, probably even fewer people, no one wants to talk about death. Even fewer people want to talk about their parents' sex life and what that might right. look like when they are moving into some sort of a care facility. That's probably the last thing on our minds. And, and, and yes, and to that point, that's true. But bringing it back to the psychological realm, which I think we always have to bring up, which is marital rape, um, and I never want to sweep that under the, the carpet. I think it's something that we all have to face. Uh, and, and Ron, you're very close to to this issue because of running a rape crisis center. But right. What we're not privy to out here in the public is whether there was those severe bruises, whether there was broken bones, whether there was injuries. Well, actually, to, in know. the in the newspaper reports, there were none. Yeah, of there that. were none. Yes, there was right. no bruising. So the, it's, yeah, it was a consensual. To, to, the issue was consensual. Was she competent enough uh, to consent uh, to sexual relations? That was the issue. Right, and then so there and he said, "I didn't force that. myself." Right, if, if she, she if, came on to me, and how could they measure the shock, anxiety, and intense fear? You know, do they have an excellent neuropsychologist that can actually give a test to somebody with Alzheimer's and and really see the difference of affect? So we're on such gray uh, area here, and I think it just speaks to our society's inability here to catch up with the real world. Of, of boomers and seniors, if you will. All right, well, Carol gets the last word. So if you have a loved one that has dementia is moving into a facility, this is something, if you've got a couple, you may need to have this discussion. You may need to talk to the facility about what is allowed, not allowed, and if you have someone with Alzheimer's, getting that care plan that Jamie's talked about, you know, very clear. Thank you. I agree with you. I think it should totally be informed consent. And I think until we really school and educate the assisted living, skilled nursing, 55 and over residential centers on all these policies and all the boundaries around it, um, this is where it should happen. And you got the last word, Dr. Jamie. That's it. Thank you. Jamie Heisman, Carol Zerniel, I'm Ron Aaron. Thanks for listening to Take 10 on 930 AM, The Answer. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS on air. Presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel, for another edition of Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, The Answer. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.